everyone and welcome back to A Culture Story. Today, my guest is Louise. Louise holds several roles with both her social and personal identities, such as mom, partner, expat, repat, entrepreneur, author, trainer, writer, podcaster, FIGT volunteer, just to name a few. And she does it with such grace and seamlessly effortless integration. Hashtag be like Louise when I grow up. In this episode, we chat about her experiences working as an intercultural trainer and how having the frameworks for talking about cultural differences has allowed her to step back and step in in some situations to realize what is going on is simply cultural. It's not centered on personality or place of origin. Our chat reminded me of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's quote, fight for the things you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. This episode also reminded me of Erin Meyer's work in her book, The Culture Map. Erin outlines how communicating, evaluating, persuading, leading, deciding, trusting, disagreeing, and scheduling are all cultural dimensions. She says on page 11, Cultural relativity is the key to understanding the impact of culture on human interactions. She goes on to give an example about how a fish in water says, water, what's water? Erin says, try seeing, feeling, and tasting the water you swim in in the way a land animal might perceive it. You may find the experience fascinating and mind expanding. She also says on page 89, the ways you seek to persuade others and the kinds of arguments you find persuasive are deeply rooted in your culture's philosophical, religious, educational assumptions and attitudes. Far from being universal, then the art of persuasion is one that is profoundly culturally based. Listen in. Louise, welcome. Thank you for being on the show today. Hi, well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Louise, what would you like listeners to know about you? Um, okay, well, I probably would start by just by saying I'm a mom. <laughs> Two amazing daughters, aged 18 and 14. I'm married um, and living in the UK. However, we've spent a lot of our adult life, my husband and I, living in Europe, in Spain and Portugal, moved around quite regularly, probably every two to three years, um, and then returned here about five years ago now, so very much back in the UK. Uh, it was my husband's job that took us abroad and um, has generally initiated our moves, though not always. Uh, there's a story around that, but I don't think we're going to be going into that one today. Um, and so my children were born, my, my eldest was born in the UK, but then moved abroad. And then my youngest one was born in Portugal and lived in Portugal for nine years before we moved back to the UK. So they both, yeah, probably really most of their formative years were spent in, in Europe and Portugal rather than in the UK. So that's been an interesting transition for them. Um, and so then the work that I do in terms of my business, my podcast, my book, they're all about supporting people to thrive abroad and that's an interest that grew out of yeah my experience but also 
So an academic interest, when I first moved to live in Spain, I studied towards a master's in occupational psychology and I had to do a dissertation and I just chose this area of international relocation, looking at the experience of international assignees and didn't know that there was this wealth of research and, and conversation around the whole experience of, of global mobility. So that was when I was first exposed to it and um, really kind of, yeah, love the fact that I'm able to do something that relates to my experience of life, but also a sort of professional and academic interest as well. My sort of former corporate life had been in learning and development, working in the L&D department of a large international insurance company. And then subsequently, I've trained as a personal performance and narrative coach. Wow, Louise, I didn't know a lot of that. So thank you for sharing. <laughs> uh, Louise and I met through the organization Families in Global Transition. And so we did have this intersecting uh, point of we both have some global mobility in our in our background. Um, but yeah. thank you for sharing yeah. 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 more of that. Yeah. Um, so Louise, what story would you like to share with us today? Okay, um, well, I thought I'd go back to that sort of L&D role because um, so when I was in my 20s um, and more latterly towards my late 20s, I, I worked in the L&D department of this insurance company. It was a global insurance company and I was invited to help facilitate a management training program that they ran in France because it was a French insurance company and oh, the owners were French, and they would pull managers from all over the world to these events where they were endeavouring to develop this kind of management style for the organisation. And we'd work in English, um, but with simultaneous translation going on for those who were not fluent in English. So that was a really interesting way of working because I had different languages you know, being spoken in the, the training room and then someone translating it all for me through my ears whilst also having to think about what I was going to say. And so <laughs> that, was, that was quite a, a challenge. I, I remember finding that really, really quite difficult. Um, but the story I want to share here is one that in some ways I'm a bit embarrassed to share, but I think it was a very important life lesson for me. So um, you know, the facilitation team was drawn from around the world. And so I had co-facilitators with very different experiences. And then we were working with a consultancy firm um, that was French to, to build the programme. So I was involved in the initial sort of creation of it as well. And the aim was to evolve a management style that fused, I guess, the best bits of different management practices. Um, but it was quite strongly French in many ways. And I remember um, sitting there in, in the group meetings and, and being hit by stuff that really kind of challenged me and challenged the way that I thought we thought about things in the UK. And I remembering arguing you know that their style was not right and and having this really sort of indignant feel that no we were right you know the British approach was right and um, that we were better I think I even probably had that value judgment which I really shiver about shiver to recall now um, but you know looking back at, back on that I realized the experience taught me so much um, because as we worked through the program and I began to see what was going on and what was happening 
I began to realize that the validity of, of different approaches and their value given different cultural orientations from which they were derived and so on. And um, it's interesting because this was all developed, it was in the 90s. So I, I think probably around the same time that Hofstede was first publishing his research about cultural dimensions, but it wasn't really mainstream. And I don't remember that that was included. So we were kind of endeavoring to create this cultural progress management program taking different cultural perspectives but not really realizing their significance and um and i think you know we were all sitting there often with our beliefs and values as as the ones <laughs> and not always reckon, recognizing the perspective of others um it was also a really great social experience because we would spend a week with all these these course members um it was a really social event so we'd be with them all day doing the, the programs but then in the evenings we would sit and have these most amazing meals with French wine because the courses were held in French chateau I, I gosh I was so lucky lucky to be involved in all of this but you know that taught me so much as well uh, at that age you know I was you know, quite young really in my late 20s about interacting with people from different cultures from so many different stories and we had wonderful conversations over those meals and that wine it was super memorable, um, but one that I learned some really valuable and important lessons about working together with people from very different um, parts of the world with very different perspectives and takes on, on in this case, how management should be done. Um, and I'm curious, why did you share this story with us? Um, because I think you know, over time, as I've moved around and interacted with so many people from different sort of cultural backgrounds, um, you know, and, and I've kind of lived in, because my kids were at school, I've lived in an international school environment. So although I was in Portugal, I was, you know, interacting with people from around the world with very different take perspectives um, and cultural backgrounds. And I think it, having had this experience really sort of helped me um, to 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 benefit from those later relationships and 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 to understand situations from different cultural perspectives um, and taking my time time for myself to sort of understand their reactions and rationale um, and putting it into better context. Um, yeah, I think often I'm thinking about in particular one time, and perhaps this is why I'm telling you about it. It's just something that occurred to me. But I was that uh, I worked for the P on the PTA of of my children's international school, and I one year I was the the school what do you call it, a chairperson for the PTA, and we had this massive conflict. I won't go into it, but it was massive and oh, horrible at the time. Actually, horrible. Um, but I remember sitting there thinking about well, what's really going on here and realising as I looked around the table that there were six or seven different nationalities and we were all really bringing different perspectives on what that means to parents, what education is, the role of education, the role of parents within education and so on. And I could see how, you know, the, the conflict and the, and the discomfort that we were actually working, working through had arisen. And I think that previous experience in having worked in that sort of multicultural environment really enabled me to see that and therefore to handle what was going on on differently um, 
I certainly didn't sit there thinking, well, the British view is right here. <laughs> so that was a definite improvement. Um, and I think what I realised then, you know, that often conflict arises from a, a sense of threat and, and threat can, that's, that feeling of threat can, can come from a fear or a feeling of not being understood or valued, you know, and that your point of opinion is lesser than. And I certainly saw that in the parental reactions to what was going on in the situation. Um, you know, a lot of anger, and I think that all came from a point of fear because, of course, parents, you want to you know, protect your child, your children. And, and so it was all very emotive. Um, and, and I think as we continue now, you know, given the COVID and the pandemic situation, we're working online. I think it's something we really all need to be very, very aware of because suddenly we're working perhaps with a range of different you know, a Zoom call could have any number of different cultural perspectives within that room and, and being aware that that is the case and, and thinking that through as we're managing the group or thinking about different people's reactions to situations. It is really, really important. Wow, absolutely. And I'm curious if you can speak about what, what's happening in your story right now. What do you love? What are you learning? Um, speak more about where, you, where you're at. Yeah, because uh, it's, 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 I suddenly, this is, actually, it's been quite useful working through your questions, Megan, because <laughs> it led me to realise something that actually I hadn't really articulated until this final question. And I thought, well, yeah, how does this connect with where I'm at right now? Um, and I'm now living back in the UK, as I've said, having spent 15 years living around Europe and longer than that, sort of working in France to count that experience as well and really benefiting from being part of Europe and our European membership, the right to live and work in Europe freely. And so as you can imagine, you know, Brexit, we came back to the UK two years before the Brexit vote. Um, and you know, to say that I was shocked and upset at the outcome is an understatement, you know, it just upset my world completely. And I, it, my world hasn't quite righted itself since because I do see myself as British European and I recognise the value of that European Union for the lifestyle we had and the lifestyle I would love my children to continue to have in that in terms of that freedom of, of movement and opportunity, which I really, really valued. Um, and so I find it really difficult to understand how we are where we are at the moment in the UK. Of course, Brexit is now done. It's a done deal and we can't go back or well, we might go back. <laughs> perhaps one day please but right at the moment we won't and you know we have to to move on and I, I suddenly realized as I was thinking through all of this actually I now need to take time to really listen to people in this country and understand their perspective those who do strongly believe that Brexit was the right thing um, because they have valid beliefs and values um, okay they may not be the same as mine but you know rather than railing against it I think now we have to kind of listen to each other and 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 work out how as a country we move forward um and how as a society you know these two sides because <laughs> it was pretty much like that um do live and work comfortably together um and and so this whole story and this kind of whole experience reminds me to sort of take my own medicine really and to take a step back and think about other people's beliefs and values their sort of cultural perspectives or just their perspectives on things. I don't have to always agree with them, but I have to 
that you know um, appreciate that they have values that they that they hold dear um, that may be different from mine and that's all residing within this one country you know I haven't got to go abroad to, to, to find that um, cultural sort of mishmash um, dissonance, dissonance I suppose is what I'm saying um, yeah so I think that's that's really kind of how I bring it to where I am right now and yeah thinking about the future of the UK really and um, how we move forward from here. I love the work that you do because we you mentioned Hofstede's work you know earlier in the, in the episode and mm. if we have these frameworks if we have the language if we have the understanding of the different cultural dimensions um, that needs to be integrated together um, wherever you are in the world. Around that is this whole concept of psychological safety to have conversations and to make the space you know and people talk about it in organizations but I think probably in society and communities we need it as well because I think for so long we've been polarized you know to the point where we don't have conversations about Brexit with people who we know are not of the same view either way you know because we know it will be contentious and I guess it's probably a similar thing in the states and um yeah at some point we have to go yeah we need those conversations because we've got to all move forward in some way mm. yes where do you think those conversations begin do they begin in the home and whose responsibility is it to have those conversations i think everyone and i think this is kind of my 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 view about sort of change generally you know yeah of course we have at the top the politicians having the conversation but i do think that we all have a responsibility to have the conversations to encourage them and and to perhaps as a parent to encourage my children to think about it um, and to listen to others uh, perhaps it starts with listening really listening to each other rather than waiting to speak because i think that so often is the point of discussion you know people aren't really listening to each other and so what comes out of any conversation is contention because we're just waiting to share a view that isn't shared <laughs> often and um, it becomes an argument rather than a valuable conversation based on a desire to really understand and, and ultimately perhaps to look for some I mean we can't have common ground everywhere there will always be you know points of disagreement um, but if we can understand the foundations for those disagreements I think it's that helps doesn't it it's a starting point so yeah I think it starts my answer would be it starts in the home um, it starts with encouraging people to really listen to circle back into what you were talking about at the beginning of how you had dinners together good cuisine um, and I think exactly it's um people to people it's having those conversations and i cannot wait for the the day we can have we can have people over again um yes. you know without the yes. fear of of endangering someone's health so yeah i i agree like let's let's continue to try our best to connect on a on a human level absolutely definitely <laughs> yes yeah well, Louise, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and stories with us today. And I conclude each episode with some rapid fire questioning. Um, so are you ready for the prompts? 
I think so. Yes, I agonised a bit over these, but hey, <laughs> let's go. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Culture is like air. Culture is like air, and I, I was thinking it's generally invisible, but it's fundamental to sort of life and understanding and living. One thing everyone should pack in their suitcase is. This is boring, but a really good book, in my opinion, <laughs> for delays at the airport, all those kind of things. That's really wise. One of my favourite movies or books is? Okay, and my family will kill me for saying this, and I probably should be embarrassed, but film, Mamma Mia, and Mamma Mia 2, actually, for sheer fun, um, because I'm an original ABBA fan. I grew up with them. <laughs> and um, Christmas, uh, New Year's Eve, we spent watching Mamma Mia 2 and shrieking and singing the songs at the top of our voices. And that was such fun. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love Mamma Mia too. Yeah. Home is? Family. Story is? Everything. <laughs> Louise, thank you. Thank you again for your time. You're really welcome. Thank you for the invitation, Megan. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. In listening back to this episode, I think I would title it a proverb. A proverb which goes, To engage in conflict, one does not need to bring a knife that cuts, but a needle that sews. I leave you with a quote from the culture map. On page 218, Aaron Meyer writes, Sometimes just a few words of explanation framing your behavior can make all the difference in how your actions are perceived. Recognizing how your approach is viewed by those around you and taking a moment to describe what you are doing and why, perhaps with a touch of humor and humility, can greatly enhance your effectiveness. Here's to humor and humility. Thank you for listening to A Culture Story today. Mm -hmm.